When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. State of Emergency. Russian forces assail Ukrainian cities, and President Biden will head to Europe for an emergency NATO summit. President Putin, stop the killing. Leave Ukraine once and for all. How many more innocent Ukrainians will die? I'll speak to the UN ambassador, Linda Thomas-Greenfield, and Polish ambassador to the U.S., Marek Magarowski, next. And brutality and loss. Russian forces suffer casualties by the thousands as their push to overtake Ukraine meets fierce resistance. A look at Russia's strategy and who's winning the war when former CIA director and retired General David Petraeus joins me to discuss ahead. Plus, behind enemy lines. Inside Russia, the Kremlin moves to strangle all dissent. But as the war atrocities grow, is any of the truth getting through? I'll speak to two journalists with deep insight into Russia. David Remnick and Masha Gessen in moments. Hello, I'm Jake Tapper in Washington, where the state of our union is wondering if this NATO summit is more about images than solutions. President Biden will travel to Europe this week to meet with allies for a series of critical gatherings, an emergency NATO summit, a special session of the European Council, and a meeting of the G7. But beyond a show of resolve, it remains unclear what, if anything, these Western leaders might announce to stop Putin's slaughter of the Ukrainian people. On the ground, the Russian brutality has increased overnight. We learned an art school being used as a shelter in Mariupol has been bombed by Russian forces, according to the city council. There were about 400 people sheltering there, and individuals are still trapped in the rubble. On Saturday, satellite images showed the damage to a theater in that city where about 1,000 people had been taking refuge. One bombed, even though the Russian word for children had been painted in huge letters in Russian on the ground outside. Hundreds remain unaccounted for there. Mariupol City Council also warned on Saturday night that thousands of residents were being taken into Russian territory against their will, as Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky called in a new video for negotiations without delay, saying, quote, it's time to talk and warning of Russian losses that will impact that country for generations. Despite the escalating brutality, some military experts, including an assessment by the Institute for the Study of War, say the war in Ukraine has reached something of a, quote, stalemate. Also, Russia says it is turning to unprecedented weapons in the battle, claiming Saturday it had used hypersonic cruise missiles on military targets in Ukraine, which, if true, would be the first time a hypersonic weapon has been used in combat. Let's go straight to CNN senior international correspondent Ivan Watson now. He's at a, an arcade turned into an emergency refugee center in Dnipro, Ukraine. And Ivan, we're seeing Russian forces increasingly targeting civilians just south of where you are. That's true. Uh, the people who have taken shelter here in this improvised arcade, you know, laser tag center, they have recently escaped just days ago from the Russian siege of Mariupol, describing to me living day and night in the basements of their building with the constant bombardment coming from Russian airstrikes, artillery, rockets. We're now starting to hear reports about possible uh, naval bombardment of Mariupol, people living without electricity, running water or heat and unable to access hospitals, for example, melting snow to get drinking water uh, or collecting it from rain gutters when it falls. And the people that I've spoken to here have left behind parents and grandparents under the Russian siege of that city. And as you mentioned in, in your lead in, the, some of the places that people have taken shelter in, such as this art school, such as the drama theater, reportedly hit by Russian incoming uh, artillery and fire. The Russian government insists to this day that the Russian armed forces do not bomb Ukrainian cities and towns. The people that I've been speaking to here have endured that bombardment and have fled in their own cars and are visibly traumatized 
by the ordeal that they have suffered. One man that I spoke with an hour ago said he himself helped dig a grave for three of his neighbors who were killed by a Russian shell in front of his eyes, and he planted a cross with two sticks in the courtyard of their building for that grave. Back to you, Jake. Ivan, thank you so much. I want to go now to a very special exclusive. Fareed Zakaria, host of Fareed Zakaria GPS, just spoke to Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky. Fareed, thanks for joining us. Uh, What did uh, President Zelensky have to say? Uh, It was a a sober interview. Uh, He was trying his best to hold out the prospect of negotiation while acknowledging the terrible tragedy and the loss. He talked a lot about the children uh, who are dying and the and the way that weighs on him. But at the same time, uh, as you mentioned, Jake, he is calling for negotiations. And I asked him very specifically, given what has happened, given what Russian forces have done, given what Vladimir Putin has done to his country, um, can you negotiate with, uh, with him? Listen to what he said. President Biden has called Vladimir Putin a war criminal. Um, and yet, you have called for negotiations with him. Will it be hard? Will it be a painful for you to have to sit down with Putin were he to agree uh, and uh, negotiate with him? I am ready for negotiations with him. I was ready uh, um, over the last two years. And I think that I think that without negotiations, we cannot end this war. I think that all the people uh, who, uh, uh, who think that this dialogue is, uh, is shallow and that it is not going to resolve anything, they just don't understand that this is very valuable. If there is just 1% chance for us to stop this war, I think that we we need to take this chance. We need to do that. I I can tell you about the result of, of these negotiations. So, uh, in any case, uh, we are we are losing people on a daily basis, innocent people on the ground. Uh, Russian forces have come to exterminate us, to kill us, and we have demonstrated the dignity of our people and our army that uh, we are uh, we are able to deal a, a powerful blow. We are able to strike back, but unfortunately, our dignity is not going to preserve the lives. So I think that we have to use any format, any chance uh, in order to have a possibility of negotiating, possibility of talking to Putin, but if these attempts fail, that would mean that that this is a third world war. We talked, Jake, we talked also about the painful compromises he would have to make, and there he balanced between uh, very strong assertions of Ukrainian sovereignty, but leaving open the room for some kind of negotiated settlement. You can imagine he's in a terrible, uh, difficult position, but he handles it with with extraordinary bravery and intelligence, extraordinary transformation of a man. man. I interviewed him only nine months ago in Kiev, and it was a totally different conversation from what what we had today. All right, Fareed Zakaria, thank you so much. And you can watch Fareed's full interview with Ukrainian President Zelensky at 9 a.m. Eastern. Fareed, thank you so much. Uh, Joining us now to discuss the U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations, Linda thomas Greenfield, uh, Ambassador uh, uh, Thomas Greenfield, thank you so much for joining us. You heard President Zelensky say uh, that without negotiations, they cannot end the war. He also warned about World War III if negotiations fail. Do you see a negotiated settlement between Ukraine and and Russia as the only practical way to avoid World War III? It certainly is an important factor, and we have supported the negotiations that President Zelensky has attempted to do uh, with the Russians. And I do use the word attempted because the negotiations seem to be one-sided and the Russians have not leaned in to uh, any possibility for a negotiated and diplomatic solution. You know, we tried uh, quite a bit uh, before uh, Russia 
decided to move forward in this brutal attack on 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 Ukraine, and those diplomatic uh, efforts were not uh, uh, responded to well by by the Russians, and they're not responding now. But we're still hopeful uh, that uh, uh, the Ukrainian effort will end uh, this brutal war. I know some in the West are concerned that President Zelensky. Uh, under understandable duress with his people being slaughtered, uh, might give away too much uh, to make a deal with Russia to stop the slaughter. Some of the items being raised in these talks uh, include uh, Zelensky and Ukraine ruling out entirely, joining NATO and just staying neutral, a complete demilitarization of Ukraine with security guarantees from other countries, uh, ceding Crimea, ceding the Donbass republics uh, as independent republics, um, is that too much? Are any of those items acceptable to the U.S.? You know, this is for the Ukrainians themselves to decide what is too much for, for them. It is not our decision on, on that, and we support their, their efforts. So uh, I can't preview what they will end up uh, coming up with uh, in their negotiations with the, with the Russians, but uh, they know, and I think that President Zelensky has been clear, people are dying. Uh, Russian soldiers are, are dying, but so many Ukrainian citizens are feeling the impact of this. So he has to take all of that into account as he approached the Russians uh, at the negotiating table. Would the U.S. Uh, recognize Crimea, recognize these independent breakaway republics if Zelensky were to cede those areas uh, in peace negotiations with Russia? I, I can't say that uh, at the moment. We certainly have not recognized uh, the independent Dobas uh, uh, regions that the Russians just declared as uh, as independent. But uh, I, I can't preview how we will respond to a negotiated settlement that the Ukrainians come up with the Russians to save the lives of their own people. So President Biden is traveling to a, an emergency NATO summit on, on Thursday. Poland says that they're going to formally submit a proposal to NATO for a NATO peacekeeping mission to Ukraine. What might that look like? Would the U.S. support sending NATO peacekeepers into Ukraine? You know, uh, Jake, the president has been very clear that we will not put American troops on the ground in Ukraine. We don't want to escalate this into a war uh, with uh, with the United States. But we will support our NATO allies. We have troops, as you know, in, in uh, NATO countries. And the president has made clear that if there is an attack on any of our NATO countries under Article 5, uh, that we will uh, support those countries and defend those countries. I assume President Biden's opposition to sending U.S. troops into Ukraine would include sending NATO troops and NATO peacekeeping mission, even if it were not, uh, even if there were not any U.S. service members uh, in that mission into Ukraine? Again, I, I can't uh, preview what decisions will be made at this NATO conference and how NATO will respond to the Polish uh, proposal. What I can say is American troops will not be on the ground in Ukraine at this moment. The president has been clear on that. And uh, other NATO countries may decide that they want to put troops uh, inside of Ukraine. That will be a decision that they have to make. President Biden spoke with Chinese President Xi Jinping on Friday for almost two hours. According to the Chinese readout of the call, Xi Jinping said, quote, he who tied the bell to the tiger must take it off. That's one of his favorite aphorisms. And it's apparently uh, Xi Jinping blaming the U.S., blaming NATO for instigating the Russia invasion. Um, do you think China is going to give financial or military assistance to Putin? Look, the president was also very clear about his discussion with uh, President Xi, in which we made uh, our position very uh, well known to him, that there will be consequences for China if China decides to provide substantial uh, military or financial support to uh, the Russians that allow them to avoid the, the sanctions. Uh, the conversation, as you said, was two hours long, but it was extraordinarily frank. It was detailed and it was substantive. And we made our position clear to the Chinese. They're in an uncomfortable position. 
they have been put in a position of defending uh, Russia against their own principles of sovereignty and integrity of, of borders. Uh, so they have to decide where they will go from this point and not sit on the fence and call out uh, the Russian aggression for what it is and not uh, put themselves in the position of defending what is uh, indefensible. The city council in Mariupol, Ukraine, says that several thousand uh, people from uh, Mariupol have been forcibly taken from their hometown to Russian territory against their will. Um, they say that some of these Ukrainians were taken to camps. Some were then uh, redirected to remote cities. Uh, can you confirm, does the U.S. know that that's happening? And if it is happening, how disturbing is that? I've only heard it. I, I can't confirm it. Uh, but I can say it is disturbing. It is unconscionable for Russia to force Ukrainian citizens into Russia uh, and put them in what will basically be concentration and uh, prisoner uh, camps. So this is something that uh, we need to verify. Uh, Russia should not be uh, moving Ukrainian citizens against their will into Russia. The U.S., NATO, and Ukraine have all been warning about a possible Russian false flag operation uh, that they would use to justify using chemical weapons in Ukraine. What, what does the latest intelligence suggest about how likely that might be and how might the U.S. retaliate if the Russians use chemical weapons in Ukraine? Uh, Jake, as you know, the Russians came to the Security Council on Friday with the spurious uh, accusations that the U.S. was supporting Ukraine's chemical weapons uh, programs. And I'm not going to give that any more uh, amplification here. Uh, what we see happening is, again, this is a false flag effort by the Russians. They are are advancing what they might intend to do. Uh, we've seen it happen before. They are the ones who've used uh, chemical weapons. They use them in Syria. They've used chemical weapons against their own people. Uh, and we are concerned that they may use chemical weapons in, uh, in Ukraine. We've been clear, if they escalate to this level, we will respond aggressively to what uh, they are doing. You've seen the uh, consequences so far of our actions against uh, Russia and against Putin, and they are feeling those consequences, and they will feel more if they take this uh, unfortunate uh, uh, decision to use chemical weapons. Lastly, three European heads of state visited uh, Kyiv uh, in the last week or so. Um, former Ukrainian President Petro Poroshenko suggested that President Biden should visit Ukraine on his trip to Europe this week. Uh, is that on the table? As far as I know, it's not on the table. The president is uh, going to uh, Europe uh, and he will be meeting with uh, all of our partners and allies there. Uh, I have not seen any uh, discussions of the president going into Ukraine, but uh, you have to remember, we have discouraged Americans from going into Ukraine. This is a country at war. I, I can't imagine that uh, that would be on the table. U.N. Ambassador Linda Thomas-Greenfield, thank you so much for your time this morning, Madam Ambassador. Thank you, Jake. A daring visit to Ukraine's capital at the center of the fighting. What did European leaders learn? The Polish ambassador to the U.S. will be here next. Stay with us. Plus, why have so many Russian generals died in Ukraine? What does it reveal about Russian strategy? Retired General David Petraeus will break down the tactics coming up. Welcome back to State of the Union. I'm Jake Tapper. As Russian forces use increasingly brutal tactics in Ukraine and edge closer to Western Europe, the leaders of three NATO countries made a dangerous trip to the heart of the fighting, Ukraine's capital city of Kyiv. There, there, the leaders of Poland, Slovenia, and the Czech Republic met with President Volodymyr Zelensky in person this week. Joining me now for more, Poland's ambassador to the U.S., Marek Magyarovsky. Uh, Mr. Ambassador, thanks so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Your prime minister says he intends to propose a peacekeeping uh, mission, a NATO peacekeeping mission in Ukraine at this week's summit, what would that look like? What would be part, who would be part of that force? What exactly would they be doing in Ukraine? It is understandably a preliminary concept which has been put on the table, a proposal which has to be considered by uh, our NATO allies 
And of course, in terms of international law, uh, it will be complicated, as you probably imagine. But uh, I believe we have to explore every option and every avenue to stop this aggression and this unprovoked war as quickly as possible. Of course, without uh, engaging Russia in a direct military confrontation, because this is not the intent. But I think we should talk about all possibilities uh, in order also to send a very clear signal to the Kremlin that uh, NATO is determined to not only help the Ukrainians uh, to defeat the Russian army, the aggressor on their soil, but also to defend uh, our uh, territorial integrity, our sovereignty and our freedoms. So I don't know how you would do that without engaging with the Russians. The Russians are attacking Ukraine. If a NATO peacekeeping mission goes in, it seems very likely. I mean, they're killing American journalists, uh, not to mention Ukrainian nevertheless, children. Nevertheless, it is a proposal which should be discussed. Right, but wouldn't that automatically, I mean, if a NATO peacekeeping mission goes in, inevitably either they will engage with the Russians or the Russians will engage with them, and then you have like Article I said, 5 it is a very, Yes, like I said, invoked. it is a very preliminary concept. It doesn't need to be a peacekeeping mission under the cover of, uh, of NATO. NATO does not need to engage in this kind of uh, operation. Anyway, I believe that uh, the, the upcoming NATO summit in Brussels next week will be a, a, a great opportunity to talk about all these uh, possibilities and options and proposals which are now on the table, how to deter Russia, also in the longer term. Yeah, I pre presumably Polish troops would be part of such a mission. Well, Polish troops are, um, we are willing and ready to uh, help the Ukrainians as uh, much as possible, and again, within the framework of NATO cooperation, to uh, defend themselves. Again, we are not talking about a possible escalation and uh, possible engagement uh, of NATO troops in Ukraine. I fully agree with most uh, Polish and Western politicians who say that it would be too escalatory. But anyway, uh, we have to be very adamant that... Uh, if Russia escalates, and if this war is uh, uh, protracted in the longer term, we have to be uh, ready to defend NATO territory. Like President Biden said in his State of the Union address, we are ready to defend every inch of uh, NATO territory. We are ready to defend every NATO member country. And that's why we should be uh, also discussing uh, numerous possibilities of defending ourselves, not only Ukraine. Right. But just to be clear, you're talking about Polish troops, without question, in Ukraine. No, no, I'm, I'm not talking about Polish as part of a, As Ukraine. part of a NATO peacekeeping mission. Uh, I, I, I have to repeat this for the third time. It's just a preliminary concept. We okay. can't take any decisions unilaterally, even right. as NATO member state. All such decisions, no matter how um, radical they seem to be now, have to be taken by all NATO member states. Okay, well, we look forward to hearing more details about this plan. Just a few days ago, Ukraine's military said that they shot down a Russian drone that had crossed uh, into Ukraine from Poland. Um, so Russia has already violated Polish airspace, theoretically, if you believe this account, at least once in this conflict. Uh, what can you tell us about that? And what would Poland do if Russia violates your airspace again? I, I don't have much more knowledge about that. Of course, uh, again, if Russia... Uh, uh, if there is an incursion into NATO territory, I believe the Russia uh, can expect a very harsh response on the part of, of our alliance. So your prime minister, uh, I don't think it's uh, overstating it to say he put his life at risk by traveling uh, to Kiev this week, along with two other European heads of state to meet with President Zelensky. Uh, what message was he trying to send uh, to Russia, to NATO, to the Polish people? It was a very symbolic journey, obviously. He wanted to send a message of solidarity and sympathy uh, with the Ukrainian people and especially with President Zelensky himself. Um, and also he stressed very clearly that uh, talking about uh, Ukraine's future, that the European Union should uh, grant the so-called uh, fast-track option to Ukraine in terms of Ukraine's joining the European Union, Ukraine's accession to European institutions, which has always been one of the most important and crucial aspirations of the Ukrainian people. As you probably know, uh, if we look at uh, recent polls and surveys, the approval for 
European Union's membership in Ukraine has skyrocketed. And I believe that uh, uh, it's, uh, we can see this in plain view, that the Ukrainians have fully deserved to be uh, members of the European Union. At least 2 million Ukrainian refugees have fled across the border into Poland. Uh, the two largest cities in your country, Warsaw and Krakow, uh, the leaders of them have already said that they don't know that they can handle any more refugees. How much longer will Poland be able to continue accepting refugees, and do you need more international assistance? Uh, we have been managing this crisis remarkably well so far, but of course it has already become a huge burden, both logistically and um, yeah. socially. Two, mil- two million refugees yeah. in the course of three weeks, yeah. A very short period of time. Uh, by the way, a few days ago, the Polish parliament passed a law, approved a bill, pretty innovative, by the way, which uh, essentially facilitates uh, further integration of all those Ukrainian migrants and refugees into the Polish society. They can apply for Polish IDs, they can set up their own businesses. Um, uh, between uh, 60 and 80,000 Pol- uh, Ukrainian children have already been incorporated into the, the Polish schooling system, uh, healthcare, insurance. Uh, these are the benefits that the Ukrainians are already receiving in Poland. Uh, so it is uh, uh, quite a challenge, of course, and that's why many mayors of, Pol- of Polish cities are now in talks with their counterparts in Europe and beyond about the possibility of relocation. Because, again, um, in the longer term, uh, we have done our utmost to uh, accommodate the Ukrainian refugees, to host them in our homes. Uh, but, of course, two million people. It's a lot. It's a huge number. Ambassador Magyarovsky, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. Really appreciate it. Ukrainian forces have had stunning success defending their homeland, but Russia is using increasingly brutal tactics. Who's winning the war? Retired General David Petraeus will join me at the Magic Wall next. Welcome back to State of the Union. I'm Jake Tapper. When NATO leaders meet this week in Europe to discuss combating Vladimir Putin, leaders of the countries nearest to Russia will share existential concerns. They've been warning about Putin's territorial ambitions for years, and they fear if Putin succeeds in Ukraine, they might well be next. Joining us now is the leader who will be at the NATO summit, the Prime Minister of Estonia, Kaya Kallas. Uh, Prime Minister Kallas, thank you so much for joining us. Um, you were born under Soviet rule. Your mother was deported to Siberia as a child by the Soviet regime. When you watch what Putin is doing in Ukraine and Russia and Georgia, are you afraid he's trying to roll back the clock on Eastern Europe to those dark days? It's heartbreaking to see what he's doing in Ukraine. And and it is true that today we are hearing news about uh, deportations in uh, Mariupol. This is exactly what was done also uh, in Estonia um, just the uh, 1940s. And, and this, is, uh, this is devastating. People were put uh, to cattle cars and sent to Siberia, uh, couldn't come back. Um, a lot of atrocities that happened to us uh, then. But right now we are in a different position because we are NATO allies. We have been members of NATO since 2004. Therefore, we are not afraid at the moment, but we are trying to do everything what we can to support and help Ukraine to fight this war. Putin must not win this war. You'll be at the emergency NATO summit in Brussels this week. What are you going to tell your fellow NATO leaders at that meeting and what are you looking to hear from them? Well, first, we should look into the smart containment. Uh, We should definitely move from the deterrence posture that we have in NATO to a secure defense posture. We have to uh, strengthen our eastern flank of NATO. We have been talking about this for years, but now it's time for action. Uh, Then we definitely have to push every uh, NATO ally to invest in their defense at least 2% of our GDP. Estonia is doing that already for over 10 years, and now we are ex- uh, um, increasing our uh, expenditure to 2.5% of our GDP. And this is absolutely necessary because if all the armies are stronger in Europe, then NATO is stronger. And third point is that we should also think about more uh, of, of a cooperation There are some capabilities that are too expensive for any individual um, uh, state, but but if we do them together um, here in Europe uh, to protect our territories, we are stronger. And of course, we must move on with the isolation of Russia at all the political levels that is possible. When you you 
talk about moving from a deterrence posture to a containment posture. Uh, can you give more details for our viewers as to what exactly that means? You want more American and British missile defense systems to the frontline countries such as Estonia, such as uh, Poland or Romania. What exactly do you want? Uh, yes, we need uh, more capabilities to uh, to um, you know support ourselves and defend ourselves uh, by by air defense uh, systems. What is definitely uh, necessary here, uh, but also uh, also the troops that are present that act as a deterrent uh, also to the uh, Russian military. Um, when we talk about air defense, then uh, of course. Uh, if you look at the Ukraine war, then they are using the missiles uh, from such a long range that uh, they can also reach uh, Paris from where they are shooting right now. Uh, so it needs to um, come to the um, minds of all the European leaders to understand that this uh, defense is uh, our common issue. And it's not the theoretical discussion, but, uh, you know, issue in, in real life. The Polish prime minister has said he will propose deploying a NATO peacekeeping mission to Ukraine. Might you support that? We can only have a peacekeeping mission if we have peace. But, uh, you know, if you look at what is happening in Ukraine, uh, peace is, uh, is not nothing what, that we see there. It's, it's, uh, it's war that is going on. And I don't see that uh, Russia has any intention of, of uh, doing anything uh, to achieve peace. So first we should have peace uh, to then to keep it. But I, what I agree with is that sometimes in order to achieve peace, we have to have the willingness to use military power. How worried are you about the potential for all-out war in Europe? Is World War III a real possibility? Well, if we uh, would see to the future and, and look back, I mean, two years from now, then we, we would have... A correct answer to your question, but right now uh, we we don't see that. Of course, um, I think our efforts should all be uh, focused on ending this war uh, right now, and and uh, that this war doesn't expand to any any other country. And this is our focus. That's why all the NATO allies are um, also providing help, also providing military help to Ukraine. Estonia has already taken in roughly 24,000 Ukrainian refugees. Uh, thousands of Russian citizens are also trying to flee Putin's efforts to crack down on dissent inside Russia. Will those Russian refugees be welcome in Estonia? Well, first of all, uh, I want to um, just um, put uh, some some points on the migration. If you if you look at uh, Putin's strategy for the last 20 years. He has been feeding the far-right forces in, in Europe, but also in US, uh, with the same talking points that uh, Europe is under huge migration pressure, and, and this is our vulnerability. So now he's creating the situation where he's bombing the cities down to the ground. So he's creating this huge uh, uh, migration pressure to Europe. And, and, and what we see in different countries, we also see the far right now picking up the tone saying that, you see, uh, we should not help the, uh, the uh, war refugees that are coming from Ukraine. Uh, there are too many issues related to this. And, and now the two sides get together. So it has been a brilliant strategy on Putin's side. But um, it is a hybrid war. This is also a tool in this war. And we have to keep this in mind that uh, we don't um, you know, let ourselves uh, get into those fights. Our uh, enemy right now is Russia, uh, not the Ukrainian ref war refugees that are in, in our countries and need help. Estonian Prime Minister Kaya Kalas, thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. Ukrainian forces have had stunning success defending their homeland, but Russia is using increasingly brutal tactics. Who's winning this war? Retired General David Petraeus will join me at the Magic Wall next. Stay with us. Welcome back. Russia is suffering troop losses and has been unable to take Ukraine's capital city of Kiev as of yet. But the Russians are expanding their attacks and retired general and former CIA director David Petraeus is here to talk about uh, the latest on the ground. So, uh, General, thanks so much 
uh, for joining us. Uh, let's start with this map of Ukraine, because right now we know the Russians are working on four major fronts. Uh, there's Kiev, uh, there's Kharkiv, uh, there's obviously the Donbass region, the separatist regions, and then, of course, uh, Crimea. But and the sta- it does seem as though right now we're hearing that it's something of a stalemate. Um, what is going wrong for the Russians right now? Well, an awful lot, actually. It's a stalemate, but we should know it's a bloody stalemate. Right. This is not a ceasefire. And also, arguably, it's a battle of attrition. It's a stalemate on the battlefield, again, with lots of continued damage uh, on both sides, lots of destruction, especially from the Russians. But there's a, a battle of attrition, in a sense, between the will in Kiev and the, and the country, and then between that and Moscow, and especially in the Kremlin, as their economy, their financial system, and all the rest of that is just collapsing. But what you see uh, up here, this is the main effort. We can come in and show that in a you second. To, you want to sure. look at Kiev? Let's Keeve? do that. Yeah. So here's Kiev. And so right yeah. now, they seem to have been, they, they haven't been able to, here's Kiev right now, and they yeah. haven't been able to get in there. No, you've really seen no big change to these lines for about two weeks. Uh, the Ukrainians have actually been counterattacking around in here, but very local counterattacks. Here, the Russians are actually digging in. They're actually digging holes for their tanks because they've taken such losses. And they're really not quite within artillery range of the center of the city. They have rockets, uh, missiles, bombs, and everything else that we've seen. And they're rubbling these little villages that are on the outside. Keep in mind, this is 320 square miles compared with New York City, all of which is 300 uh, miles in total. So again, pretty much a stalemate here, but again, very much a bloody one. But if we go in now, let's go down to the to the south. So let's look at this yep. corridor because this is important. You right, We have it Russian is. troops just absolutely pummeling uh, Mariupol. Mm -hmm. We've heard just these horrible stories about citizens being taken out into Russian camps of sorts and and that city just being devastated. But but Russia has reportedly established a land corridor between the Donbass region, which is here, and Crimea, which they seized in 2014. Which they've wanted for a long time. This is important. It, It extends all the way across here. It's very important. Mariupol has not yet fallen. It is out of food, fuel, water, everything except for heart. They are still fighting very hard. This is the first place where the Russians are having to do no kidding urban fighting, having to go building to building. Every single room has to be cleared in this kind of endeavor. And they're finding out that it is very soldier intensive and it just eats away at the reserves and forces that you have. And who are they? Are they fighting the Ukrainian military or the Ukrainian resistance or both? It's all of the above. Keep in mind that, you know, everybody wants to say, well, the Russians have, I don't know, 200,000 and the Ukrainians have 100,000. That's not so. The Ukrainians have 100,000 plus every other adult just about in the country, uh, all of whom are willing to take up arms or help in some way, even if it's just jam radio signals or conduct vlogging. They call Russians in Russia and say, do you know how poorly this is going for you? So everybody's engaged. But the problem here is, again, that they are literally starving. This is a siege. That's what the Russians are doing here. And, and again, how long they can hold out. And that's very important because once, if they do surrender, these forces will be freed to go back up. And if you want to go back to the Ukraine map overall, uh, what that would do is free forces to go up this way. Eventually, you could actually surround a lot of Ukrainian forces that are in here. So, so you, the significance of having this part right here, which is what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. There, here's Mariupol. Yep. Here's Crimea. Connecting Crimea, which they seized in 2014, yes. yep. with the Donbass is what? They can consolidate forces and go that well, way? Well, that, it's that on the battlefield now. It's also that you have a land line of communication between essentially Russia and Crimea that doesn't require the bridge here in the, the street. Right, they've got this little here. That's Let's right. go back to the, yep. to the the corridor here, which is just this. Mm-hmm. This is this is what they had previously. All they had was That's this right. teeny little bridge, which you can't really get everything you need if you're in the Russian military right. across this bridge. It's just not big That's enough. That's right. That's right? right. That's right. What's the now, significance? Can I just ask you, what's the significance of huge. Odessa? Why do they want Odessa? Odessa so is the single biggest port. Uh, if they take Mariupol up here, that's the last big port. Uh, it is directly on the Black Sea. It doesn't have to go through the Strait of Azov and so forth, which can be blocked by the Russians. Uh, it's the lifeline uh, for all of Ukraine when it comes to what's coming in. Um, and so what they've tried to do is go here. They've tried to get through Mykolaiv, which are two key bridges. They're already rigged for demolition if they have to. And they've just, again, it's a stalemate. They haven't done much. They've gone a bit north to try to get around a river that's up here. 
Ultimately, they want to invest Odessa in a siege, and there's also ships standing off uh, here offshore that can conduct an amphibious landing. So, so far, that's all essentially on hold. I want to just uh, talk briefly about this because yeah. the Ukrainians say they have killed five Russian generals in Ukraine. CNN has not independently confirmed that. Uh, we also hear that a, a top U.S. Uh, general says Russian soldiers don't appear to be particularly motivated. I only recall the U.S., and I might be wrong about this, so I apologize if I am. I can only recall, recall one American general being killed uh, in Afghanistan in the entire conflict, and that was a, a, a green on blue uh, insider attack, right? I, mean, I it, think that's right. I'd have it, to it's not common. It. It's kill very, 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 very uncommon. This isn't the first three weeks, and these are quite senior generals. The bottom line is that their command and control has broken down. Their communications have been jammed by the Ukrainians. Their secure comms didn't work. They had to go to single channel. That's jammable. And that's exactly what the uh, Ukrainians have been doing to that. They use cell phones. The Ukrainians blocked the prefix for Russia. So that didn't work. Then they took down 3G. They're literally stealing cell phones from Ukrainian civilians to communicate among each other. So what happens? The column gets stopped. An impatient general is sitting back there in his armored or whatever vehicle. He goes forward to find out what's going on because there's no initiative. Again, there's no non-commissioned officer corps. Uh, there's no sense of initiative at, at junior levels. They wait to be told what to do. Gets up there, and the Ukrainians have very, very good snipers, and they've just been picking them off left and right. And, and at least four of these five are absolutely confirmed, and I think the fifth uh, we'll hear today. Are these like the kind of guys you, you have heard of? Um, some of them are, yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Some of them are, especially the three-star general right there. All right. Yeah. David Petraeus, thank you so much. Always really pleasure, insightful. Jay. Really appreciate it. As Putin closes a new Iron Curtain, thousands of Russians are fleeing their country. What will life be like for those who stay? We're going to talk to someone who just got back from Moscow and Ukraine. That's next. This is an illegal war. Your lives, your limbs, your futures are being sacrificed for a senseless war condemned by the entire world. I urge the Russian people and the Russian soldiers in Ukraine to understand the propaganda and the disinformation that you're being told. Arnold Schwarzenegger trying to break through Russia's new digital Iron Curtain. Joining us now, two journalists who have been writing about Russia for decades, David Remnick, editor of The New Yorker, and Masha Gessen author and staff writer at The New Yorker, who just returned from Moscow and Ukraine and has a piece in today's uh, New Yorker called The Scattering that we're going to talk about in a second. Uh, David, let me, let me start with you because I want to get your reaction to that video from Arnold Schwarzenegger, who has a huge following mm-hmm. in Russia. In fact, he's one of only 22 accounts that Vladimir Putin uh, on Twitter uh, follows. Do you think Schwarzenegger's message or any other message like that is going to be able to break through Uh, what people are calling the Kremlin's digital iron curtain? Well, I think it's age-dependent to some degree. I think older people, in general, depend almost entirely for their news on state television. And it's, it's very hard to imagine for our viewers here how complete uh, a a propaganda uh, wall that is. Um, But younger people who are much more web-oriented and who know how to operate a VPN, which is fairly simple, uh, have the capacity and have called on the capacity to get behind that kind of digital wall. So, yes, I think things like Schwarzenegger or Western news outlets or other kinds of uh, uh, truth-telling uh, capacities are getting through. But it's, it's, it's certainly not to the degree to what we'd want, and it's going to take time. Masha, you, you, last, you landed in Russia the day after the invasion began. You said it was as if people there were living in two entirely parallel realities. What what do you mean by that exactly? What was it like on the ground in Russia? Well, one of the most striking scenes I witnessed was two young women being dragged off by police for protesting. And when I say protesting, right, uh, it doesn't look like protesting does in the United States. They were not carrying placards. They were not chanting slogans. They were just suspected of protesting by the police who were specially stationed in the square to catch anybody who might look like they might be protesting. So they were being dragged off and the whole city was continuing to flow and go about its life around them without noticing. And it didn't even seem to take any effort for people to not notice. It was just the sort of thing that happened outside of people's um, view, right? And, um, and the other thing is that 
there's the sense of normalcy that Russian television continues to project, which I think is something that we don't realize looking from here. It's not just that they're not calling this a war. It's not just that they're saying that they're fighting Ukrainian Nazis in Ukraine. It's that they do it in such a routine way in five minute newscasts without showing any of the carnage and without even conveying any sense of urgency, any sense that anything out of the ordinary is going on. Mm. And Putin gave a speech this week, David, in which he denounced, quote, scum and traitors inside Russia. He called for a, quote, self-purification of society. Putin also held this massive pro-war rally in in Moscow. Um, Is this reminding you of the the Soviet playbook of yore? Not just the Soviet playbook, the Stalinist playbook. And that's an important point to make, I think. When you use words like self-purification, that is summoning up something like 1937, the, the Great Purges. And what he's hoping for and what he's experiencing in reality, and, and, and Masha has written so brilliantly about it this week, is that a couple hundred thousand people, uh, some of the best and the brightest, have fled Moscow to new lives because of their fear of being ar- arrested and, and their ordinary lives being eradicated or being thrown, they're being thrown in prison computer programmers, journalists, authors, college professors, all kinds of people. Now, this tends to be, tends to be urban middle-class people, St. Petersburg, Moscow, and other cities in, a, in an enormous country. But to see that kind of flood indicates some level, uh, at least you get some indication of the, the fear and the sense that this is not a, a, an episode, but rather a really a transformative event, obviously for the worse. And Masha, I was just reading uh, earlier today your piece, The Scattering, and in it you talk about uh, people going on to their uh, websites and deleting their websites, hiding YouTube videos, even hiding something that they might have liked or shared uh, because of these new laws uh, that enable Putin, if you just even mention certain words, to throw you in jail. So a week after the invasion began, uh, the Russian Duma held a special session, the the parliament, and passed a law that makes it punishable by up to 15 years to spread what they consider fake information, false information about the invasion. uh, Among the things that are considered false is calling it a war or an act of aggression or an invasion. And so there are already prosecutions starting. Uh, And in the past, the state has prosecuted people for liking something, for sharing a comment. So um, people have real fear. And the other thing that's happening that is incredibly frightening is there's clearly a lot of sort of vigilante enforcement starting to happen, where people are starting to have their houses ransacked. The letter Z, which has become a symbol of the invasion, painted on people's doors. People are literally being chased out of the country and hounded. And David, you, you published a fascinating interview w- with Stephen Kotkin, a leading scholar of Russian history, who said that Putin's brand of despotism is, is, is quote, all-powerful and brittle at the same time and, quote, creates the circumstances of its own undermining. Can you explain what he means and, and do you agree? I do agree. I think what he's trying to describe is the way the Kremlin works now. Um, this is, there's no collective leadership in the Kremlin, as there even used to be during the politburos of, of, of the communist era, particularly after Stalin. Uh, wh- what you've got, increasingly, year after year, the circle around Putin became smaller and smaller and smaller. And any contrary advice, any sliver of ideological uh, difference uh, became rare, and now it's vanished. And you have very, very few people around Putin now giving him advice of any kind. All they do is to carry out his orders. I mean, the epitome of this, and it was visual, and Putin wanted you to see it, was the famous meeting of the Security Council at which the, the members of the Security Council sat 50, 75 feet away from him. And one after the other got up and paid their obeisance and, and gave their agreement to this, uh, this horrendous invasion until the head of the SVR, the foreign intelligence uh, uh, bureaucracy, got up and he seemed to hesitate and stumble and Putin humiliated him. This is something, again, out of the 30s, but instead of it being secret and us hearing about it in the archives, we're watching it on television just as Putin meant us to see it. And that's a way to, to prove to the country that he's in charge, he's making all the decisions, there is no real advice. 
And I think it, you know, so that shows a kind of vulnerability because terrible decisions are made. I don't think Putin wanted to end up in a situation where he was invaded and three, four weeks later, uh, his generals are being killed and he's stuck in Ukraine and his country is being isolated. But now he's doubling down on that very decision because of the, uh, the miserable uh, decisions that he's made as a result of his completely mystical and, and, and misbegotten notion of what Ukraine is and is not. And Masha, in, in your piece in the New Yorker this morning, you write that almost everyone you know in Russia has now left. Uh, thousands of Russians fleeing the country, 200,000, one estimate. Just this week, we saw the defection of one of the country's most famous ballet stars. What effect do you think this mass, mass exodus will have on Russia uh, in the future? Well, if there's a post-Putin future, then um, we're talking about the people who would have represented the hope of creating something new, uh, being out of the country, right? It's um, just as he's turning Ukraine into scorched earth, there's a way in which Russia is being, into, is being turned into, into scorched earth. And that is, that is really dimming the prospects of any future. All right, David Remnick and Masha Gessen, thank you so much. Appreciate your time and your excellent reporting, as always. Coming up, an image that has come to define the cost of this war. We'll be right back. The government of Norway announced that four U.S. Marines were killed there during a NATO training mission on Friday when the helicopter they were traveling in crashed. We will bring you the names and stories of those brave Americans as we get them. In Ukraine this week, another American, Jimmy Hill from Minnesota, was killed by Russian fire while standing in a breadline. Hill was there caring for his partner, a Ukrainian, receiving medical treatment for his MS. And U.S. journalists Brent Renault, a documentarian, and photojournalist Pierre Zakrzewski, as well as Ukrainian producer Oleksandra Kuvshinova, both of whom work for Fox, were killed covering this war. May their memories be a blessing. Our hearts go out to all their families and more broadly to all the innocent people being killed in this horrible war, including thousands of Ukrainians, of course. I want to leave you with this image from Lviv. It's 109 empty strollers sitting in a quiet square, each one symbolizing the unimaginable tragic loss of 109 children in this war. There aren't really words that can fully capture such a horrible loss. There is, of course, this image, these empty strollers without any playful, rambunctious, innocent children in them. And that image is devastating. Before we go, pull out your phones. Don't miss the State of the Union podcast, which you can listen to on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast app. Just open your camera and scan the QR code on the bottom of your screen. Be sure to follow us for all the most recent interviews with the most important voices on today's biggest stories. Until then, thank you for spending your Sunday morning with us. The news continues next. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.